Please listen to the reading of the Lord's word. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him two. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Now, as many of you know, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount to many different kinds of people. You had his own disciples. You had what we call the common everyday folk. But then you also had some religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you remember, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus takes them on right up front that what you've been saying is not correct, but I'm going to correct that. And so we saw, starting in verse 21, Jesus began to challenge six principles that the Pharisees has, had been incorrectly teaching. Now, we discussed three of these principles already in verses 21 through 33. Each principle teaching, it began with the statement, you have heard the ancients were told, or you have heard that it was said, and then Jesus comes back and says, but I say to you, as the one who has authority as the Son of God, now he then corrects their teaching and he brings the correct teaching. And we've already looked at three of these areas. The first one was victory over anger, murder in the heart, purity in sexual matters, lust in the heart, and faithfulness in marriage. Jesus spoke on divorce and remarriage. And today, Jesus was going to focus on three more of these moral principles, and he's going to bring the correct understanding based on the Word of God. We're going to take a look at truth, and what does it mean to be selfless and also love? I've got to tell you up front, these are challenging, man, <laughs> so challenging. You know, as I study, I have to deal with this up front before I bring it to you. And when you read these just kind of black and white, you're startled. No one can do this. You cannot do this. 
on your own. But because God has given us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit enables us now to live out what Jesus is going to tell us. And he's saying this so that there's a, a difference, a distinguishing factor between God's people and the people of this world. So what distinguishes God's people from others? First thing, God's people should speak and keep the truth. God's people should speak and keep the truth. The idea is don't make a promise you can't keep. Don't say a vow, take an oath, if you don't plan to keep it. So what's truth? Pastor and author Steve Lawson gave a simple definition. I'd like to read it to you. Truth, that which conforms with fact or reality. It's genuineness, veracity, or actuality. In a word, truth is reality. It's how things actually are. Now, truth isn't, isn't just a description of what is real. Truth is anchored in who God is. Understand, God is truth. He is the author of truth. Truth isn't something that we create. Truth is something that we discover because God is the creator of all things, including truth. Now, a lot of people like to say, well, truth is relative. You know, you have your truth, I have my truth. But to be honest with you guys, nobody actually believes that all the way to the end. Because most people that say truth is relative or you have your truth, they get really upset when you don't agree with their truth, right? Because what people want, they want people to be truthful and honest. If we really break it down, we all want that, even those that claim that. And what Jesus is dealing here is, is not so much the truth that is found in God's Word, which, is it, which it is. What Jesus is going to deal with here is honesty. To be people of truth. To be people of His Word. If you make a statement, do you really mean it? Are you shucking and jiving? Or are you speaking truth? Because God's people are to be people of truth. Now, we desire truth, and, and the reason we desire that is because God is truth, and we are created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male, female, he created them. And because God is truth, this desire for truth is in us, but we have a problem, don't we? It's called sin. And sin causes us to be deceptive. One of the first sins was dishonesty. Adam and Eve, after they ate of the forbidden fruit, they lied. When God says, hey, why did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat from? Adam, he blamed Eve. Eve, she blamed the serpent. Basically, they didn't take the truth for real. They lied. And mankind is very much like Adam and Eve. After Adam and Eve, every one of us has that sin nature. But for God's people, we are called to be people of honesty, people of truth. And that pattern of habitual lying should not be part of who we are. And the reason is because we are now part of Jesus. 
And Jesus is truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus also told his followers in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus saying to those of the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so Jesus here in verse 33 says this. He says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. So as Christians, we're to be people of truth. We're to be people of our word. We're to be honest people. And there's going to be a distinction between those who are Christians, people of God, and those who are not. And one of those distinctions is that those who are not, they're liars. Now, Jesus, speaking to John the Apostle, put it like this in Revelation 21, 7, looking at the end times. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, nobody's perfect, but what he's saying here, if lying is your default, something's up. If this is something that you have a habit of doing, it's just part of who you are, something's going on. Do you have the Holy Spirit within you? Are you truly born again? Because an indicator that the Holy Spirit is in you is he drives us towards honesty and truth, and we have a love of truth. Now, Jesus is quoting here in this section in Matthew from a number of places, Leviticus 19, 12, Numbers 30, verse 2, Deuteronomy 23, 21. And two vows are mentioned here. They're two different Greek words. One he calls false vows, and the other ones he calls them your vows. The false vows is from a Greek verb, and I can't even pronounce, pronounce this, epikoria, which means to perjure oneself and to swear falsely. The second, which is your vows, is from a noun, horkos, and this literally means to enclose with a fence, and, the, and kind of the idea is that someone speaking the truth will make a vow of something greater to themselves to give, give emphasis that they're going to hold that truth, kind of like saying, I swear on the Bible. But what's happened is this section right here, he's not saying never take a vow, even though it sounds like it. And I have to work that through with you. So I want to read you 34 through 36 and kind of walk it through. Jesus says, But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for that is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, the Quakers, they take this literally, and they believe that you cannot take an oath in a court of law. And some people read that, and they think that it means that you can never take any kind of an oath whatsoever. But Jesus here, he's more concerned with irreverence, talking flippantly about things that really matter. It's about being honest and truthful. This is the main thrust of this section right here. Because when you look at the breadth of scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, many godly people took oaths. Matter of fact, Abraham, 
made an oath with his servant that his servant would go find a mate for his son Isaac. And he made him take an oath that he would not find a wife from the Canaanites, but would find it from his own people. He did that in Genesis 24. David made an oath with Jonathan, the son of King Saul. And the oath that they made together was that Jonathan would be like his right-hand man when he became king. 1 Samuel 23, 18 says, So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horish while Jonathan went to his house. That idea of making a covenant is making an oath together before God. In the New Testament, Paul frequently made oaths. Paul would make a promise, and then he'd back it up by saying, as God is my witness. He said this in John 1, 9, 2 Corinthians 1, 23, Philippians 1, 8, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 and 10. And in Matthew 26, Jesus speaks while under oath. Matthew 26, 63 and 64, but Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. That means under the oath before God that you tell us whether or not you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus, instead of staying silent, responded and said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In all these different places, you see oaths were pronounced and godly people used them. So it's not saying you can never take an oath. But you have to understand what was happening in context of this day. People were taking oaths for any reason whatsoever when they never meant to keep it. And they were afraid to take an oath as under God, and so they started to take oaths under all sorts of other things. And the teaching was being pushed forward by the scribes and the Pharisees, but their thinking and their teaching had two serious flaws. The first flaw, it had a missing ingredient, insincerity. People weren't sincere. They weren't being honest. They were saying, hey, I will do this by my head. And they wouldn't keep it. Or by Jerusalem. And they wouldn't do it. And in Jesus' day, people were taking oaths all over the place. And so no longer when a person took an oath did it mean anything. Because it used to be, particularly when you look at the Old Testament, oaths were only used for very, very important matters. So the Jewish code called the Mishnah, there was a whole section given to oaths. One example, a rabbi, he, he swore that if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound by that oath. But if you swear and you happen to be facing Jerusalem, then you're bound by that oath. And so it started, to, people would kind of micro their oaths. But they always used them to kind of give emphasis for what they were saying. They were insincere. That's the first problem. The second flaw is there was an, a misplaced emphasis. You might call it evasive swearing. The people knew they weren't going to keep it. They knew they weren't telling the truth, and so they would swear by something else. They'd swear by their head, by earth, by heaven, by the temple, by Jerusalem. But what they forgot is when you make an oath, God takes it seriously. When you say you will, He wants you to keep your promise. So Jesus takes them to task here. Now, I want you to hear Jesus' words. He's speaking to these same scribes and Pharisees about oaths at the end of the book of Matthew. And this is what he says as a warning, Matthew 23, 16 and 17 and 22. He says, Woe to you, blind guys, who say, Whoever swears by the temple that it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools, you blind men, 
Which is more important, the gold or the temple that is sanctified, that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by heaven swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus' point right here is the creator and Lord of everything, that he is the God of truth. And everything that is spoken as a lie comes from the father of lies. And that people of God should not be careless by what they say. And they should not be flippant or irreverent when they're going to take an oath before God. Because it is a compromise of truth, and God is a God of truth. And so Jesus would say the kind of oath-taking that they're taking is actually lie-taking. They're taking lies. And so verse 37 says, he makes it crystal clear, let your statement be yes, yes, and no, no. What he's saying here is just say what you mean. Instead of trying to say an oath on this and back it up with that, just say the truth. And if you say you're going to do something, then just do it. If you're claiming to be God's person, then live it out. Be honest, because he's honest. Now, James says exactly the same thing in James 5.12. He says, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but, yet your, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. One day, you and I are going to give an account before God. We're going to give an account for everything we've thought, for everything we've said, and for everything we do. Now, this concept of truth, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's dying. It's basically dead in our culture. Truth is so relative, it's basically expedient. Whatever you want to be truth, as long as it gets you ahead, then that's okay. But this has been going on for a number of years now. In the early 2000s, comedian Stephen Colbert, he picked up on this cultural phenomenon and he coined the term truthiness, which basically means anything you want to say is true. And it became the word of the year in Merriam-Webster's Dictionary for 2006. In 2016, in the wake of the presidential election and also Brexit, there were accusations going across the political spectrum, right? It was called fake news, right? Oxford Dictionary coined a term. They called it post-truth, and that became the term or the word of the year in Oxford Dictionary. But guys, this thinking that you use truth or non-truth however you want to get you ahead, it's flowed into our culture, hasn't it? A number of years ago, I was uh, asked to marry a, a couple in this church, and, and they weren't from our church, but there was somebody who used to be at our church. They were a friend, and, and so the woman was a lawyer, and the man was a businessman, and the, the process that we go through here in church is we go through premarital counseling, and then at the end of that premarital counseling, the, the couple needs to make sure that they have a license, and the process with the license is you have to have witnesses, so they have to sign it, then you have two friends or witnesses, and then I have to sign it. And then I, as the pastor, then I send it in, and then it's, you know, whenever, whenever they receive it at the courthouse, they stamp it, and you get your official marriage license. So that's kind of the process we go through. And so we went through this whole premarital counseling, and I got to tell you, they were, this couple, they were like, man, we are all for Jesus. We want him in the center of our marriage. We're all for God. We want to honor him by everything we say and do. I'm like, right on. We went through 10 sessions of premarital counseling, and then... We had the rehearsal, and at the rehearsal, I typically have them sign, because everybody's there, it's not the day of the wedding, and then I sign it on the day of the wedding, and then I send it, but, but the woman, she's a lawyer, and she told me before, and she says, please, 
give it to me. Give the license to me. She goes, I want to send it in. She says, I just don't trust the mail. And I've seen too many instances where things never get done, so I'm going to personally take it to the courthouse and turn it in myself. And I said, oh, okay. And so I married them, big wedding, tons of people, their family. She never sent it in. Two weeks later, she left him. She'd been seeing somebody else on the side for months. And everything she said to me in those counseling sessions was a lie. Every oath she took before God in the marriage ceremony was a lie. And the marriage was never officiated by the state. It was a lie. She didn't speak the truth. She didn't keep the truth, even though she claimed Christ. This is so important. As followers of Christ, we are to speak and keep the truth. That's the first thing. Second thing, God's people should live lives of selflessness. We're called to be selfless. Now, this is actually opposite of our culture, is it not? Because the natural man is really about self, but God's people were to be selfless. Now, again, context is crucial when you're studying Scripture. And the context here, Jesus is teaching on the real meaning of the law in personal relationships. Verse 38 says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now that verse 38 is from Deuteronomy 19.21. It says, Thus you shall show no pity, not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So the text here in Deuteronomy, it deals with justice and retribution in a court of law. The idea is if you, you were hurt by someone, you would take whatever offense happened, if they poked at your eye, you'd take it to the court, and the court would rule you get to poke out this guy's eye. And this is the oldest law on record. It's known as lex, which means law, talianus, which is retaliation, and it's a reference that comes from the Code of Hammurabi. This is in the second millennium B.C. And it's actually a just law. It's equal giving back, right? It's retribution. But it's always been done with the emphasis that it's done by a court of law. And what happened here, the rabbinic tradition turned it from being done in a court of law, and they handed it over to the public and said, you can be judge and jury and executioner. If somebody punches in the nose, you punch them in the nose. It was never meant for that. And they've changed it to be personal instead of in the court of law. Now, as we live in a nation of rights, and because we live in America, we have inalienable rights to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But I don't know if you've noticed over the many years, there have been many more rights that have kind of been pounded into this, right? There's now civil rights, women's rights, children's rights, workers' rights, gay rights, animal rights. I could go on and on and on. And so we come from a culture, we're all about rights. But I think what Jesus is doing right here, he's talking to God's people. Those of us that make a claim that we believe and trust in Jesus Christ. And what he is saying to us as his people, are you willing to give up your rights for the gospel's sake? Are you willing to be rightless for the sake of the gospel? 
And boy, this rubs against my American culture. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, I have rights. And so I'm going to have to kind of work this out with you guys, kind of walk you through this process because it's very uncomfortable. Now, verse 39, he says, But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Now, the background for the statement is a legal one. This command, do not resist an evil person, he's rebuking the Pharisees for their misinterpretation of the law. And some misinterpret that no Christian should be involved in the army, the police force, or the court of law. And some people even believe that you should never take force at any time, total passivism. But you can't do that through Scripture, guys, because Romans 13, chapter 1 through 7, teaches that the state is a divine institution that has power to punish wrongdoers. Again, context is key. He is not teaching never to resist evil. Jesus himself went into the temple and he threw out all the money changers because they were doing an evil work. Time and time again, the apostles stood and resisted evil. Paul taught to expel people from the church if they were practicing immorality. So this can't mean you never resist evil. Now the, that word resist, ethesisteme, it means to set against or to oppose. And in context, it refers to harm being done to someone personally, somebody who's committed an evil against you. And I think what Jesus is talking about is personal vengeance. You taking you know, retribution, if you will, on another person. That you personally avenging a wrong. Now, I think this because there are a number of scriptures that speak about this. Paul the Apostle said this in Romans 12, 17, and 18. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. We're called to overcome someone evil by doing good. And I think Jesus is talking about God's people giving up our rights for the sake of the gospel. And again, this is a hard lesson because it presses against our pride. It's saying, wait a minute, that person did something against me, so I'm going to get back at them. It's my right. And Jesus is saying, give up that right for my sake, for the sake of the gospel. Now, how can we do this? You can't. <laughs> you can't. Except by the work of the Holy Spirit. And expect if you understand that you are not your own. You have been bought at a price. He owns you. Now, yes, we have rights. As a matter of fact, Paul spoke about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to kind of work this through with you guys. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 says, I am, I am, Oh, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the work of, uh, are you not my work in the Lord? Verse 4 says, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Verse 5, do, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? And verse 12, if others share the right over you, do we not more? What's interesting, when you go to verse 15, Paul says, but I've used none of these, none. What he's saying is he gave up his rights for the gospel's sake. And there's going to be times in your walk where God's going to have people in your life and you're going to be tested in this area. And they're going to harm you and hurt you and despitefully use you. 
And he's going to say, vengeance is mine. Trust me in this one. Wait. Now there are four areas of non-retaliation that he's speaking about here. And the first one is to give up our right to dignity. Give up our right to dignity. Verse 39 says, But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other from him also. Guys, this is not an extensive list. There's going to be only four. But these are very important because these are ones that we feel we have a right to. But for Christ's sake, we willingly, because we're His, give them up. Now, Jesus is saying here, expect persecution. He's saying as a Christian, you're going to get hurt because of your faith. People will stand against you to the point of slapping you on, on the cheek. Now, people have a basic right to dignity. Respect might be another word. And among the Jews and all Eastern cultures, to strike someone on the right cheek was considered very, very much an insult. As a matter of fact, a slave by the name of Epictus, said this. He said, a slave would rather be whipped to death than to be slapped on the face. But as Christians, when we're insulted or maligned or treated with contempt, Jesus says we're to give him the other cheek. That when someone harms you for the sake of the gospel, that you let it go. And not only that, you take it a step farther, you offer him yourself even more. Boy, this stuff hurts. It's so hard in the flesh to do this. And it symbolizes not taking revenge. It symbolizes that God is at work. God is doing something. And we're going to trust God in the midst of this difficult thing and trust even though it hurts so much, I don't take revenge myself. Peter said this in 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, for this finds favor with God. He's saying, hey, retaliation is God's job. Let your dignity die. Let God deal with it. Paul the Apostle said this in 12, Romans 12, 19 through 21, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, say the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. And do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I do not believe this is teaching, allow yourself to be beaten up. But what this is teaching is for the sake of the gospel, there are going to be times where people are going to use you and hurt you. And you say, Lord, I'm going to turn the other cheek for your sake. First thing, you give up your dignity. Second thing, be willing to give up your right to comfort and security. To comfort and security. Verse 40, if anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have the coat also. Now the shirt was an undergarment, and the coat was an outer garment. And the coat was often used to keep one warm at night. And, and this is a poor culture. Most people only had one shirt, one coat, some maybe two shirts. In Exodus 22, the Mosaic law required that the outer garment would be returned at night so the person wouldn't freeze. And in his teaching, 
is simply this. If someone sues you, and by the way, they're suing you probably falsely, and you lose, and they take your shirt, he says, go the, go the extra step. Give them your coat as well. Again, this is being willing to suffer for Christ's sake. This is w- being willing to go farther than what the law requires because you're a Christian. To be willing to do more, even to the point where you give up your most prized possession. For many, that would be that coat that would keep them warm at night. And again, I don't think it's saying let people rip you off. If you know that people are going to rip you off, nah. However, there are times when you're sharing Christ as a witness, you have a family member or a friend, and you know they're using you. But for the sake of the gospel, you take the hit. You willingly give them the code as well. For the gospel's sake. Third thing, willing to give up your freedom. Willingly give up your freedom. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with them too. We in America, we have the right of freedom. But it's not held higher than holiness and righteousness and honoring the Lord with our life. And as Christians, the Lord may call you at some point to serve someone else, to go that extra mile, to do something you really don't want to do. Why? For His sake, for the gospel's sake. The idea here is the Roman law. The Roman law, a soldier had the right to stop anyone on the open road who wasn't also a soldier or a Roman citizen, and they could force them to carry their pack, literally make them a beast of burden. Do you know how demeaning that was for a Jewish person? Do you know how much they hated the Romans? I read somewhere where they said, other than when a Roman was actually fighting them in battle, they considered this to be the worst insult. And so literally, if you were a Jewish man or, or woman, and they were on a road and they had heavy packs, they could take that person and say, you're going to take this for a mile. Literally, stop whatever you're doing. You've got to take this. If you're a Christian, take it too. Go the extra mile. Even though you're insulted. Even though it, it makes you tired and it hurts and you're frustrated. Now, what does this mean? I think for us, it speaks of our time and our money and our energy. People are needy and they're messy. And as a Christian, it's going to take your time. Sometimes there are going to be people that are hurting, they have a real need, and they may need your help, your money. And sometimes, guys, it's going to take all your energy. Serving the Lord, it takes energy, it takes our time. And he's saying, are you willing? Because it costs us our dignity, our comfort, our freedom. There's the last one, our property. Our property. Be willing to give up your property. Verse 42. Give to him who asks of you and do not, re- do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, Karen and I have worked hard for the things that we have. But again, this is a principle that speaks about stewardship. That we understand, and I hope you understand, that everything that you have is not yours. You are but a steward here. God has allowed you to have whatever you have as a steward. And if somebody was to look at your bank account, would they see that you, oh, yeah, that guy's a steward of Christ. Everything. And there will be times when somebody has a real need 
And God is calling you to freely give. Now, there's wisdom here, right? You don't just want to give to anybody who wants. People can take, and, and sometimes it actually hurts people more if you give them what they want. But there will be times as a Christian where someone will have a real need, and God is calling you, you, me, to be generous, to be open-handed, not tight-fisted. Are you willing? So the mark of a Christian, the mark of a person of God is selflessness. A person who's willing to go that extra step. A person who's willing to be humbled. A person who's willing to be meek. A person who's willing to give far beyond what the world would give. And that difference is noticeable. And is the evidence of Christ in us. Two things. God's people should speak and keep the truth. God's people should live selfless lives. And the third one, love. Love. God's people should love others well. Now, love is the mark of a Christian because God is love. He says, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's verse 43. And Jesus will contrast the religious leader's kind of love. He's going to contrast it with God's kind of love. He's going to contrast a citizen of the kingdom of God and a citizen of a kingdom of this world. Now, the rabbinic teaching here, they perverted it. What they did in Leviticus 19 is the text where Jesus is quoting. Leviticus 19, 18 says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against your sons or your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What they did is they omitted part of it, and then they added to it. So they changed it. Look at verse 43 again. It says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So they admitted your neighbor as yourself. They took it out. And there's a reason they took it out. They wanted to have a narrower view of what neighbor means. You see, to them, neighbor was anybody who was kind of fit their standard of what a neighbor was supposed to be. That would be a good Jew in good standing. But when you read the Old Testament, neighbor basically just means anybody you run into. It could even mean a Gentile. And so what these scribes and Pharisees are doing, they're trying to keep it very narrow and in a box because no way is God calling them to, to trust and love a tax collector or how about a sinner or even worse, a Gentile. That means the Romans. God would never want you to do that. What they did, they forgot what Isaiah taught in Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, 6, he said, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The Jews were called to be a light to the Gentile nations. Their life, not only their holiness, but their love was to reach the lost, even the Gentiles, even the Romans. They did not like this one, so they changed it. They omitted it. They took out as yourself. But then they also added something as well. They added, hate your enemy. Hate your enemy. You see, the Jews hated the Gentiles. And they particularly hated the Romans. And they had forgot that, that teaching in Isaiah. And so what Jesus is going to do, he's going to take them to task on this idea of love. 
And he says in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the most powerful teaching, I think, on the love of God in Scripture. The love of God commands His people. It's a love that is so great that it doesn't only mean that you love your family and your friends, but you literally will be able to love somebody who hates you and harms you. It's an otherworldly love. We can't do it. You can't. Not on your own. Again, only because of the work of the Holy Spirit that He has given us through Christ can this even be done. That's the point. This is the driving point of this whole section. In ourself, in our flesh, you have no ability. But in Christ, because of the work of His Spirit, great ability. And the love that he's speaking about here is agape love. Now, there's four kinds of love. Philea is brotherly or friendship love. Storge, love of family. Eros is romantic and sexual love. But the love here is agape love, the love of God, godly love. And it is a kind of love that is only brought to you by the work of the Spirit that God has placed within you. This kind of love is described by Paul in Romans chapter 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who who He has given us. In verse 8 says, God demonstrates His own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You and I have had the love of God poured into our hearts. And because we have the love of God poured into our hearts, now we can love the unlovely. Love those who hurt you. Love those who despitefully use you and even pray for those who you don't even like. And literally, God can change that heart where you're so upset to the point where you can actually love them. It's a miracle. Now, whenever you look at the love of God, it's always tied to the cross in the New Testament. The love of God is displayed most beautifully in the cross of Christ. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Well, how did He do that? He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. The cross. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, and He gave Himself up for me. Well, how did He give Himself up for me? The cross. The love of God is displayed on the cross of Christ. And that love that is displayed by these elements because of the cross means that Jesus died, rose again, sent the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit has been given to us. So now you and I are the representatives of God's love in this world. And it is an otherworldly love. And it is impossible in the flesh. And it is so different than the world's kind of love. Now, Jesus gave this order to love for two reasons. The first one is in verse 45. It makes us like God. It says, So that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes the sun to rise and the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. When people see the kind of love that you have, they realize, wow, there is a God. Now, God loves all. That's why He sends... His love, the rains, and and, and good life to both those who trust Him and those who don't. 
And we are to be the love of God to others. People may never know the love of God except through you. It comes from us. But there's a second reason. It distinguishes that we're different, that we become a witness for Christ. Verses 46 and 47. Hey, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You don't even, don't even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. That's the point. We're different. We have the Spirit within us. We have the ability to agape love, to love the unlovely. This whole message is driving to that point. And then he ends in verse 48, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And by the way, that word perfect means mature. It doesn't mean we're perfect, of course not. And again, he's pushing against that verse 20, which says that our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. People will know us by our love, guys, bottom line. And it will be what people see and they'll say, there must be a God. I read a story by D.H. Dr. H.A. Ironside. And he was in Ganado, Arizona at a Presbyterian Mission Hospital. And there had been a poor Navajo woman who was dying and literally her family kicked her out into the elements and they found her dying in the forest, in the cold. And they took her in and after about six weeks, she was finally to the point where she was beginning to, to think clearly. And she couldn't understand why this doctor who was a white man had been so kind to her and been taking care of her. And so finally she asked one of her nurses who was a Navajo nurse, she asked her, why is that doctor so kind to me? And the nurse, even though she was a Navajo also, she had become a Christian and, and the nurse said, well, well, that doctor is a Christian and so it is because Jesus lives within him, he did that. And so she says, well, who's Jesus? And so the nurse calls in a missionary that was there and he began to explain to her the gospel. And then weeks later, the, the missionary asked this woman, he says, are you ready to receive Jesus as your God and your Savior over your ancestors and the gods you've been worshiping? And just as he said that, the doctor walked in and the lady's face beamed and she says, well, if Jesus is anything like my doctor, I'll accept Jesus. Guys, that's God-like love. It wasn't man love, his love for her. It was the love of Christ manifested through him. Do you see it? That is what makes the difference. That is what we're called to. We're called to be like Jesus. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let's pray. Father, we, we hand over this message to you, and you know our hearts, Lord. And each of us, Lord, see where we've fallen short. But Lord, we know because of the work of your spirit and the truth of your word that we can live a life that honors you and that makes a difference. Would you help us to do that, Lord? Would you show us how to do that, Lord? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. By the way, when I meet a new believer, I, I rarely take them to this first thing, right? Because don't you feel the pressure the reality of the Christian life is that God changes us, transformation, and He's changing us, constant. And there's a reality of the Spirit working within us that He's always calling us higher, isn't He? He's calling us to be more like Jesus. And I want to pray for us as a church. If we actually start to live this stuff out, 
radical. People will come to you. They'll come to church and say, what is that? i got to see. Let's pray. Father, I lift up each of us, Lord. You're working on each of us in different areas. Even as I read these texts, God, there were areas that your Spirit was speaking to me and showing me, Lord, how I am being called higher to honor you with my life, with my words, with my deeds. Oh, God, I pray for us as your people here. Lord, would you use us? Would you pour out your Spirit through us? Would you enable us, God, to honor you? Show us the areas, Lord, where we're weak and failing. Enable us in other areas to be a witness for Christ's sake. And Father, help us to love, to love well, so that others will know the love of God, that you would be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Christian life is to be a life of selflessness. A number of years back, I went to pick up my mom with all my brothers and sisters. My stepfather, Ollie, had Parkinson's, and my mother could no longer take care of him. And so the six of us siblings, we descended upon Story, Wyoming, to move my mom. And the morning of the move, there was this guy. His name was Zach. He shows up with donuts, big smile on his face. He worked harder than any of us brothers and sisters. And at the end of the day, I asked my mom, I said, is this guy a Christian? And she said, oh, yes. All year, Zach had been showing up to my mom's house with groceries by surprise. He shoveled off her walk when it was snowing to make sure she would be safe going out to the mailbox. And then I found out from some of the neighbors that he was doing that with all of the neighbors as well. They knew he was a Christian because of his love. And he never said a word, but his life was a display. I pray for us, guys. We have an opportunity now more than ever. Our world is polarized, and our world is seeking, and it's seeking what we have. If we live out Christ, they will know us, and they'll know us by our love. Amen.